This is an ABC podcast. How much of your time are you racking up on TikTok every day? Half an hour? Maybe a couple of hours? What about zero? Because that's what it could be under one politician's idea that we think about banning TikTok. G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack, and later we're going to be speaking to this senator and finding out what's got him so worried. Also coming up, you're going to meet the Aussies with pet crocs. It's actually a lot more common than you might think. First, though, some big questions. What is art, and can robots do it? Hack. Can't say we've ever covered the State Fair's art competition, but this is the first year it has been won by our robot overlords. The winning piece was created by artificial intelligence. Actual artists who got beat out are not happy. It's a great debate over what constitutes art and what AI should do. Is AI art art? Does art need to be generated by humans, really what it comes down to? Is it art? Uh, uh, I mean, well, in, in order to answer that question, you have to you have to ask, what is art? I put an AI-generated art piece into the contest in the digital art category. And I won first place. Jason Allen had never entered an art competition before, and he's gotten some flack. They're saying, I didn't make it. You cheated. You're not an artist. I disagree. The AI is a tool, like a paintbrush is a tool. And there is a creative force and a mind behind it. But AI arguably did most of the work. On Triple J. Yeah, we've been making art for thousands of years, from the earliest cave paintings to the multi-million dollar works of contemporary artists. Also, don't forget your little paper mache numbers in primary school. They're art too. Art is a uniquely human experience, or is it? Because as you just heard, an artwork created by AI has won a prize in the US, and it's got artists around the world fuming. One called it a threat to human artists everywhere. It's definitely a striking piece. If you haven't seen it, you can go check it out on Hack's Instagram. I want to know, do you reckon this outrage is justified or do we need to rethink the way we look at art, how it's created? Because it's not just prints and paintings we're talking about, also the music world as well. AI's impacting that. So what do you reckon? Do you care if the songs you're listening to or the art you're consuming is made by robots? You can let me know. I want to get into this a bit more. And with us now is someone you know, Double J presenter, musician, Tim Sheil. And he's got a bit of experience with AI works and using them professionally. So I knew that he'd have a lot to say about this. G'day, Tim. Thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, Dave, you've just, you've set me up there, you know, come on to Triple J and have an interesting take on AI. Oh my goodness. All right. I'm going to flex my intellectual muscles now. Yeah. And it's a a really simple question, Tim. This is the one I've got for you. AI generated art, yes or no? Yes or no. Oh boy. Look, it is kind of here to stay essentially. Um, You know, I think I've been following it just with a, a measure of curiosity and excitement and horror, I reckon for maybe 10 years or so. And it just kind of keeps accelerating. The ability of these models and then the UI, um, the platforms and things that are built around these AI models, it gets more sophisticated day on day. And what people are able to do, it's not really going to go backwards from here. Because this is the thing, it's not something brand new that's just popped up in the past few months. As you say, this kind of software programs um, producing um, artwork through artificial intelligence, been around for a little while now. You've actually used AI-generated artwork or had some experience there for album covers, right? How did that work? Yeah, I started doing that 
oh, probably 12 months ago. And it was really just out of my own curiosity with those tools. I was using a website called Art Breeder, um, which is one of many just easily publicly accessible tools that you can go and load up in a browser and, and muck around with. That's one thing that's happened in the last maybe three or four years is that things that you used to have to know your way around code or spin up some sort of arcane uh, computer setup to do, uh, that's evolved into now these interfaces which anyone can just load up and play with. So this Art Breeder platform, I essentially loaded one of my own like promo photos, like a picture of me looking kind of cool and moody, like an electronic producer, um, <laughs> into into Art Breeder's system. And long story short, you know, press a few buttons and it's spitting out hundreds, thousands, or as infinite really, as many different variations of myself as I could as I could possibly want. And none of them really look like me, but then they sort of do and they maybe capture some essence of me. And the, But then you tweak the knobs and it turns into something else. And obviously... It's been well documented that these, the data sets that these neural networks work from in terms of generating AI images, they contain their own biases. They are very much like weighted in someone's favour in terms of uh, the content that's inside of them. Like they reflect the bias of our culture more broadly. So they can probably, well, they do spit out sometimes some horrible results. But I just became personally interested in using the tools because I want to know what it feels like to use these tools to make art as an artist and as a person. Cause I think we need more people in the playground if we want to have any hope of controlling or understanding the impact of AI on art and just society more broadly. We actually need artists in the weeds trying to figure it out. Interesting. And I mean, I saw some examples of this, some um, that you sent through to me, but also I think on your Instagram, there's some examples as well of AI generated art. And I think it's, uh, it's fascinating because some of it's really good. And this example from the US that we saw over the weekend, the artwork that won the prize, a lot of people will look at that and go, oh, that's a really nice piece of art. Were you surprised by how good some were? Yes and no. I mean, I think if you have been tracking this area for a few years, you, you've probably had countless moments over the years, or I know I have, of like, holy shit, like I did not expect this thing to be able to do this. And in terms of what, particularly in that kind of 2D imagery, art, photography, with things like um, DALI and Midjourney and Stable Diffusion, these tools, which are, again, publicly accessible, you can load up a website, type in a thing, and it spits you out some art, some AI art. It is wildly stunning how incredible some of this stuff is. Some of it is really artistic. Some of it feels really intentional, uh, can feel very much like a person has sat down and painted a thing from scratch where really all someone has done is kind of creatively come up with a combination of words. It opens up all these conversations around authorship, which are ones that have we've been skirting around in art and culture for decades, but it's going to really aggressively bring ideas around who owns uh, intellectual property, copyright, um, yeah, authorship, and it's going to be hard even to keep up with the pace of that dialogue, I think. Yeah, because that's something that I saw a lot of people talk about over the weekend, people saying, well, we need to have clear boundaries around this because the example of this art prize in the US, the two judges who were involved say they didn't know that the submission was AI generated, but they also said that even if they did know, it wouldn't have changed their decision. So do, do you see the concern around that? Why some people would be like, oh, we should be a bit more transparent about what is AI generated and what's not. 
I think so. I mean, in the case of that award, which I think the lucky winner picked up something like $300. Um, so, you know, high stakes, uh, high stakes <laughs> art prize. But look, I mean, in that specific instance, I guess you got to go to, like, what is this award celebrating? Why do we even have awards for art? Is it to celebrate the work of a human or is it to, uh, you know, somehow pick apart or start a conversation around what art means itself? Now, if an art award is like meant to be a, I don't know, an illustration of someone who's invested tens of thousands of hours on developing a skill and developing an aesthetic and then translating that through a piece of art which has meaning and context. Um, you could argue that maybe you do need some rules around that, that you can't just load up an AI website and spit something out which looks fantastic but has no real context. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Double J's Tim Scheel about AI-generated art. It's a big discussion point at the moment. Got a lot of people talking. Um, Tim, what about music? If we stay on that, is AI-generated music a big thing at the moment? Because some people might have seen a bit of controversy around an AI rapper recently who was signed to a record label recently but dropped because of some concerns. Is that something you reckon we're going to be seeing a lot more of in the years ahead? I think we will. Music is on its way, you know, like there are already these primitive, I guess you could say, AI music tools. For example, there was a great one that was put out a couple of years back called the Open AI Jukebox, which was this open library of tens of thousands of kind of proto songs that these researchers had created where they'd fed a neural network just thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of popular music from across the 20th century. And then they were able to say, like, what would it sound like if Justin Bieber was was in the style of ACDC? You press a button and then it would spit it out. And it doesn't sound quite right, but it sounds close enough that it gives you a sense that we're not too far away. Um, so really, it's just a matter of processing power before those kind of AI-generated music reaches a level where we can't tell the difference, which is kind of where we're heading to with imagery a lot quicker, but I think music will be there maybe five, ten years. Yeah, I mean, what about, I was going to ask you, what about AI-generated radio presenters? Are you all on board for that? <laughs> You're like, no, no, pour water all over the computers now, all good, we don't need those. <laughs> I mean, we can joke, but uh, it's, it's... They're coming. Uh, it's, it's, it's all coming, oh. do you know what I mean? And again, it just goes back to what's important, what do you believe in? Uh, I don't know, Dave. Yeah, who knows? Look, it's getting a lot of feedback we're hearing from so many people on this one. I knew it would get people talking. Double J presenter, musician Tim Scheel, a lot to unpack there. It's so good to get your take on it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, as I said, you can see the artwork on Hack's Instagram right now. A lot of you are checking it out. Someone says, holy hell, that art is amazing. Daniel Imparamata, the real winner of the competition should have been the programmer of the AI, not the person who hit the play button on the program. Somebody else says, at one point, photography wasn't considered art for the same reason. Another person says some of the most famous artists in the world don't make their own artworks. Jeff Koons, for example, has a team of artists that make his work for him. And another person says, I think this guy was cheeky but deserves to get away with the 300 bucks. People get a bit salty when they work hard, but someone else works smart. Hack. Yeah, she's the pet that just keeps going. She could live 150 in captivity, probably longer. On Triple J. Have you ever wound up having to take care of a mate's pet? Obviously, dog or cat, but maybe something a bit more niche. Little rat or some fish? What about a rescue crocodile? 
Yeah, you heard me, pet crocs. For some in the big cities, maybe that sounds a bit wild, but if you're in the top end, far north Queensland, maybe not too surprising you would have heard of it or maybe even seen some of these pets at a local pub or at a friend's place. It's more common than you might think. And our reporter Angel Parsons has been looking into it. She's got more from Mackay. I reckon she's been in every pub from Rockhampton to Cairns. He would do that little baby call they do, the little chirping, and uh, he would always do it when my dad was feeding and he would wag his tail and it was great. Yes, these guys are actually talking about crocs. She used to love sitting on Dad's lap with her head out the window. I was in the office recently when a colleague was talking about this local guy who inherited his dad's pet crocodile. And I was like, firstly, I know we're in North Queensland, but people own these as pets? And secondly, I got to meet him. Got to say, I was a bit nervous about visiting someone with a pet croc. You? Out here alone? Oh, that's a joke. City girl like you? You wouldn't last five minutes, love. But no, it wasn't really a Croc Dundee moment. I met John Casey at his place in Proserpine where his beloved pet was sunbaking in her enclosure. Well, this is Charlene the Crocodile. I could not believe the stories John had. I just found the most classic loose Aussie yarn ever. We used to take her everywhere with us on holidays. She'd climb over the seats and it's a normal day for us. So <laughs> Dad used to walk her down the street. But, uh, yeah... But people say she used to be on a leash, but Dad hardly ever put her on a leash or anything. He just let her walk along and he'd just steer her with his feet. And did you seriously take her into, like, venues and stuff? That was the best way to meet people, pubs. A good icebreaker, I assume. Yeah, yeah. Well, the best one, I remember Dad and I come back from Townsville and we just said, we'll drop in here, eh? Dad reckoned, there, yeah, that barmaid, she didn't touch the bar when she went over it and out the door. <laughs> OK, now this is definitely a moment from a movie. Two beers, all right? One for me. And just like most of us can relate to loving our dogs or cats, John reckons Charlene has a special place in his family's heart too. That's despite the fact his dad actually lost his hand in a feeding accident. Yeah, at the time, like, Paul Hogan's Crocodile Dundee just come out and uh, the Americans got hold of it and, of course, they bundled Mum and Dad in a plane and away they went to America. They did interviews and what they call him the real-life Crocodile Dundee. And apparently they're not the only ones who really rate having a croc as a pet. It's a thing. I've always had crocodiles. My dad had crocodiles before I was even born. This is 22-year-old Philip Sullivan and he's so passionate about croc education and conservation that he and his dad rescue them. And we would take some from the parks and wildlife when we could, so we then go to the uh, skin market. I think at least half of our crocodiles are from that. Phil's from Bachelor near Darwin in the NT. He and his dad have no fewer than 19 crocodiles at their property. We have 15 salties and four freshies. Our biggest is four and a half metres and he's nearly 100 years old, they all have their own individual names. I think people really heavily misunderstand crocodiles, but they have a lot of personality. So Phil and his dad have created a kind of home for misfit crocodiles. One is blind, a lot might otherwise be dead. Like one old girl they managed to get from a Queensland croc farm after she stopped laying eggs and was going to be killed. Phil reckons they also get requests from people in the suburbs who've purchased smaller crocs from a farm, grown attached, and then don't want their pets going back there when it outgrows rules for croc ownership in urban areas. They're just like, we don't want our crocodile 
being uh, skinned at the farm, would you take it? And so we go, maybe. We either find them a rural home or we keep them ourselves. Croc populations really suffered, almost to the point of extinction up until the 70s due to unregulated hunting, and they're now protected wildlife. So having this top-end icon as a pet, is it legal? Well, in the Northern Territory, you can with a permit. If you're in an urban area, your croc's got to be less than 60 centimetres. For people living rurally like the Sullivans, there are a bunch of other rules too. But in Queensland, rules changed in 2020 and it's now banned. John Casey in Proserpine is one of only two cases in the whole state where a pet croc is still allowed. Well, she's not only the family pet, but she's a sibling. John was just two when Charlene joined the family. They grew up together and he knows she'll likely be around for a long while yet. Yeah, well, she's the pet that just keeps going. She could live 150 in captivity, probably longer. And Phil in the NT wants more people to be open to the idea of keeping crocs as pets. He says they're really valuable to tourism and ecology. It gets people talking, it gets them involved, you know. I'm always going around on the internet showing people my crocodiles and then they ask questions and then it just sort of gets them educated. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that one. And hey, I learned a lot just then. It's a big topic of discussion and sometimes a bit controversial. And... I wanted to talk a bit more about it. Luckily, I didn't have to look too far to find someone to speak about this story because Hack's very own senior producer, Serge Negus, is a reptile and wildlife advocate. He knows a lot about this stuff and he follows it really closely. Hey, Serge, thanks for jumping in across the glass. It's a weird crossover, this one, for me because I did spend years working in reptile parks and in croc farms and different things like this and in conservation. So this is actually a story pretty close to my heart, this one. Yeah, and you're one of those people that actually spends your weekends and, and, you know, trying to find all these reptiles. I do. It's a weird hobby, driving (laughs) on roads at night looking for snakes. Yeah, he's tried to get me looped into it a few times and it hasn't worked yet. But Serge, you have worked in reptile parks, as you said, conservation, all that sort of stuff. What's the appeal with these kinds of animals? Because if you're into them, you're obsessed. Yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around reptiles in particular, mainly because people don't think they have much of a personality and that kind of thing or they're dangerous. But I think that like they are just that, misconceptions. And you can have really personal relationships with these animals that are super loving and caring. I've had snakes over the years that used to crawl up um, their cage waiting for me to come out and tickle their neck. I mean... Reptiles can make incredible pets. Crocodiles are a bit of a push, in my personal opinion. I mean, they can be friendly. Alligators definitely can be like a puppy dog. But I think, yeah, crocodiles are a next level kind of pet. But again, they can also be friendly and trained, but highly extreme. Yeah. And I mean, we're not condoning anyone go out there and try and give a crocodile a nice big pat because obviously that's not going to turn out too well for you. But there have been calls over the years you know, to encourage more Aussies to maybe have native pets. And it has been controversial at times. What's the thought behind all of that? Yeah, so there's a lot of ideas around keeping native animals as pets to essentially create insurance breeding populations of native animals when they go critically endangered or whatnot. And I think this makes a lot of sense, particularly with reptiles and that kind of thing. Um, There's been successful efforts in that space when it comes to things like the Owen Pelly python, which is a giant, really rare snake in the Northern Territory. And then it's been suggested for other things like mammals, quolls even, 
But there has been a bit of a pushback on that with people questioning whether or not there is actually a kind of direct conservation value to that or not. You know, some scientists say, absolutely, because then we can reintroduce them back into the wild if they do go extinct. And then other conservationists are saying, yeah, but this is just distracting from, you know, the ultimate conservation goals that we need to work on right now, which is them not going extinct in the wild in the first place. So there's a lot of debate from ecologists as to which is more effective, I guess. Personally, I think that you can do both, probably. Um, And I think that's probably the better way to go about it because I think that if you let people keep native pets or more native pets, it just means that Australians are more connected to their native species and have more reason to want to protect them. Um, So I think there's a lot of pros. I mean, obviously, Serge, when we're talking all about this and ideas that are being floated around, we're not saying to people go out and capture wild animals and chuck them in your backyard because it's a no, it's no. a complicated issue and, you know, there needs to be a lot of thought about how best to do that. Totally. And, I mean, all the different state environment departments around this country have incredibly good laws around these things and licensing programs around them and training systems in place. And that's something that I don't think Australians know about. And I think if they did and they looked at those websites and found out about how to do it and saw where they could be trained to do so and saw how to look after native species, it would be very beneficial. But yes, absolutely not. Don't say (laughs) go out there and just grab them. There are very stringent laws around these things in Australia and you have to abide by them, but they run really well. I really commend all of our environment departments around the country because they have such good systems in place to do this if you want to. He's a talented man, passionate wildlife advocate, senior producer at Hack, Serge Negus. Thank you so much for filling us in. Thanks, mate. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, we got some comments coming through. Steve in Nunnawal Country says, our bearded dragon loves to have a shower. So there you go. Steve's got his wildlife with him. Time to get a bit more serious now. I want to talk about TikTok. Hack. TikTok are again being warned the Chinese-owned platform is harvesting vast amounts of their personal data. On Triple J. TikTok and data harvesting. Not a new issue. It keeps coming up. How much of your data is TikTok accessing when you use the app? A lot of you might think, maybe it's only my camera, my microphone, I know about that, I'm cool with it. But there is a lot of concern that TikTok's collecting more than it should be. And some or all of that info could end up with the with the Chinese government. Is it a worry for you? Maybe you don't use the app at all because you're concerned about it. The federal government's obviously a bit worried because it's launched a review into how the government should be managing it. In a minute, we're going to speak with an MP who thinks we should at least be thinking about banning TikTok. But first, here's Hack's political reporter, Georgia Hitch. Just say to Australians, if you're using TikTok, um, just think about what data of yours might be being collected and and just know that we're not always 100% confident of how that data is being used and we do need to take some precautions in this digital age. That's Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill. She's asked her department to review how the government deals with apps owned by businesses overseas in countries that don't have democratic governments like we do, aka China. Even though she singled out TikTok, and that is where a lot of the focus is, the review will look more broadly at the risks of us downloading and engaging with tech from authoritarian countries. This is a really hard and very new problem. There is no country in the world that has quite nailed this. People being worried about what kind of data TikTok is accessing has been around for years. In August 2020, Donald Trump, who was president at the time, tried to ban anyone new downloading TikTok and WeChat because of concerns that Americans' private data would get back to the Chinese Communist Party. Around the same time, our then Prime Minister Scott Morrison said the government had had a good look at the app and found that while it hadn't misused any Australians' data, it was being watched closely. It's worth quickly noting here that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, has denied a connection to the Chinese government in the past. 
Anyway, fast forward to July this year and things have ramped up a bit. TikTok users are being warned that Chinese-owned platform is harvesting vast amounts of their personal data. When the app is in use, it has the ability to scan the entire hard drive. An Australian reporter has found the social media company requests almost complete access to the contents of a phone while the app is in use. That report was done by an American-Australian cybersecurity firm and discovered that when people use TikTok, it was also accessing personal info from other apps like contacts, people's calendars and photos, just to name a few. TikTok rejected the findings in that report, saying it's not unique in harvesting that kind of data and that it only collects things that users allow it to. Let's just say that clearly hasn't put everyone's mind at ease. So, jumping back to today and the government's new review. We don't know much about it yet, like how long it'll take or whether it'll be made public, but Claire O'Neill says there is one thing that's not on the table at the moment. The government's not currently considering a ban on TikTok. TikTok is one of the most widely used apps in Australia, much beloved by Australia's young people in particular. Hack on Triple J. Georgia Hitch with that story. I want to get into it a bit more now. And with us is someone who's had a lot to say about it, Liberal Senator James Patterson. He's the opposition spokesman for cybersecurity and he is with us now. G'day, Senator. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you for having me. Banning TikTok, going to seem a bit extreme to a heap of our listeners. Seven million Aussies use it. Is this actually a realistic option to be talking about? Well, it's precisely because so many Australians use it and so many young people use it that we have to take the cybersecurity and privacy issues that come with that app so seriously. Uh, Every independent researcher, you've had some of them in your uh, lead in just then talking about this, say it's a really unusual app in the way in which it collects really excessive data on its users and the way in which that data is accessible in mainland China, including potentially by Chinese intelligence agencies under China's national security law. So it does pose unique and serious challenges to cybersecurity and privacy. And that's why, quite rightly, the government has recognised that and said they're going to investigate regulatory options to fixing it. I think it's unfortunate, though, that the minister has ruled out potentially banning this or other apps that are based in authoritarian countries, because while it might be possible to solve these problems with more lower-end regulation, it might not be. And we just have to wait for the expert advice to come back from the Department of Home and Affairs and our cybersecurity agencies. And if they say... The national security risks are so grave that they cannot be addressed in any other way, then I think it needs to be on the table. But there are going to be some people listening thinking, oh, there are security concerns with all kinds of social media apps. What do you say to that? Look, they're partly right. There are so, there are concerns with all social media apps. It is their business model to collect data on us and in most of their cases to monetize that data. But some of them seek to monetize it within a rule of law jurisdiction that has a free press and an open society like the United States or Australia, which is one thing. And some of them seek to monetize it and potentially use it for other purposes in an authoritarian society. And in the case of China, the Chinese government has been trying to economically coerce Australia and our intelligence agencies have assessed is responsible for unprecedented levels of espionage, foreign interference and cyber attacks on Australia. So it's a different uh, challenge altogether, as are apps like WeChat and Didi, which is a competitor to Uber in the ride-sharing space. They genuinely need to be carved out and treated differently to other apps. But I guess I'm thinking, you know, the coalition was in power for years. If this was so pressing, shouldn't the former government have done, you know, a lot of these things, taken action? Mm. 
Look, I've been concerned about this for a long time and have been personally speaking out about this for some time, including when I was the chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee in the last parliament. But in the case of TikTok, a number of these revelations, most disturbing revelations, have actually come out over the last few months. It was a, a leak to BuzzFeed by a whistleblower within TikTok only three months ago, which told us that user data of Americans, and I subsequently confirmed also Australians, was being accessed in China. TikTok had never told us that before, and we've only recently learned that. And a lot of the new analysis of how the app functions and the data it collects on its users, that's all happened in the last few weeks. So um, whether they like it or not, it's, it's fallen on this government's watch and it falls to them to fix it. It does feel like, though, that a lot of countries, not just Australia, are having trouble resolving this issue because we have been talking about it for years. And even, you know, on Hack, Hack has investigated this in the past, the kind of um, data harvesting allegations, um, misinformation on TikTok. There was a big investigation into this last year. Um, The US, you know, we heard a lot about it under President Donald Trump. He was trying to block it from app stores, but the courts later found that illegal. It is proving to be a really difficult thing for countries to, to get some progress on, it seems. I agree with you. It is inherently difficult to regulate these issues and it's a difficult balancing act between people's freedom to choose to use these apps and services knowing the risks and the broader risk that they pose to our countries, particularly to national security. So I, I, I agree it's a tricky issue. There have been some reports in recent days that the Biden administration is considering regulation targeting TikTok. That will be really important to watch because I think if they lead on this, a lot of other countries will follow. Just quickly, Senator, we've only got 30 seconds left, but this review, what are you hoping comes out of it? I hope it provides some really practical solutions to the cybersecurity and privacy challenges posed by these apps located in foreign authoritarian countries, and the opposition will provide bipartisan support for the government if they want to address it. Okay, very interesting. Uh, Well, we'll stay in touch and uh, keep talking about these issues because they are big and we know our listeners are using these apps. They want to know exactly how much of their data is being used and they're keen to be updated on all of that. Opposition cybersecurity spokesperson James Patterson, thanks for joining us on Hack. Hack. On Triple J. And thanks for all of your messages on the stories today. I've got a big response to the art AI chat. Also, the weird and wild pets that people have from all over the country. We really appreciate all of that feedback. And you can find more on Hack's Instagram page as well, so go check it out. That's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.